0: Hey, good morning, everybody. How we doing this morning? Hey, usually I say that to all of you much earlier in the service uh, during announcements, but it's the same good morning, and as always, it is such a blessing and honor and pleasure to be here with all of you. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Craig. I am the campus pastor here at Spring Lake, and this is the first time that I get to give a message in this building, which is kind of cool. Um, I've done this a couple of times at Grand Haven, But this building has a lot of memories for us. Uh, We were here when we first opened the church here. I was baptized right in that tank right there. And uh, it is really neat to be here with all of you. And uh, right now we are in a sermon series titled Jonah. Jonah. So as you might guess, we are in the book of Jonah. Why don't you go ahead and turn there right now if you brought your Bibles with you. If you didn't bring your Bible with you, you can use your phone. I won't judge you. And go ahead and turn over to Jonah 3. And uh, here's the thing as we're about to start in Jonah 3. Both Jonah 1 and Jonah 3 follow a very similar path. Two completely different results, but a very similar path. So it's important that you know what happened in Jonah 1. And also, my past as a teacher won't let me remind you what we've learned the past couple weeks, just in case you weren't here. So let's get a little background of what we've learned in this book so far. In Jonah 1, if you remember, God commands Jonah to go to Nineveh. And Jonah, in all his wisdom, says, nope. I'm not gonna listen to you, God. I'm going to flee to the other end of the world in a city called Tarshish. And I am so happy I didn't have to preach on Jonah 1 because I would have to say Tarshish, and I don't think I can say that word correctly like 15 times, (laughs) right? And so he is fleeing to the other side of the world, which is what I will call it. And then God says to Jonah, nope, I'm not letting you do that. And he hurls a great storm onto the boat that Jonah is in. And the sailors look around and they're trying to figure out what is happening because this is not a normal storm. And Jonah admits that it is his God that is angry with him. What he has done, and he says, if you throw me overboard... My God will relent. So that's exactly what the sailors do and they throw him into the water. And God, in what I love, these two words, in a severe mercy, Jake talked about this at the Grand Haven campus when he preached on this. He sends a large fish and swallows up Jonah where he spends the next three days and three nights. And then in Jonah 2, from inside the belly of the fish, he prays out to the Lord And what might be the central verse of God's word. He says, and he cries out that salvation belongs to the Lord and the Lord alone. And the Lord spoke to the fish and the fish spit Jonah out on dry land. In ESV, it says, vomited him out, which I think is an even better way to talk about the condition Jonah was in. And that brings us to Jonah 3 where Jonah finds himself in the exact same position that he was in in the beginning of um, chapter one. So let's begin reading in Jonah three with verse one where it says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, Smart. According to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. Now, if you remember what I was saying just a minute ago, this is almost exactly how we started in chapter one, right? Both start with God telling Jonah to get up and go to Nineveh. We're in the same circumstance with the same person, the same God with the same command, And what that tells us is that our God in our first point this morning is a God of second chances. I think we can say this is true in our own lives that many of us have received a second or third or fourth chance and Jonah was no different. God is still asking him to do the exact same thing. And I think so often in our lives, we think to ourselves, if we get a second chance, for some reason, the circumstances are gonna be completely different. God will somehow make it easier for us to make a good second decision. But we see here, that simply is not always the case. Sometimes we're in the exact same position. And that makes me think of a story. One of the things I get to do here a little bit that I absolutely love doing is soul care. And if you don't know about soul care, it's soul care, biblical soul care counseling. And we get people in the room with us, with our pastors or lay counselors, and we get to go on the front lines with them during what might be the most difficult time in their entire life. And we get to show them God's truth. We get to show them God's grace. We get to open God's word with them. And he is the ultimate counselor in the room. And in that, we get to see great transformation. So I wanna tell you about a couple that I did some soul care with. And I got permission to tell this story, don't worry. In fact, I think his exact words were, yeah, if people can use my stupidity, bring it on, right? I'm still not gonna say their names. But they were doing soul care with me And what brought them there was simple, he cheated. The circumstance of how he cheated isn't important, but what we need to know is that he did. Now, they had already done a lot of the hard work. They really did. He had asked for forgiveness. She had granted him for forgiveness. It It was actually really beautiful, but they were still struggling. As you might imagine, struggling with trust, struggling with this idea of what if the other woman called him again? Or sent him another email. You see, this time when he got caught, he did exactly that. He got caught, which made things even more difficult. So as they came in, they had this underlying issue. And we talked about how he could handle it, how she could handle it, and what way was glorifying to the Lord. We saw it coming, but it still happened. The other woman called. Now, he did a much better job this time. Right, he didn't, he didn't hide it. He told his wife that the other woman called, and when the other woman called, he told her, I'm not your guy. You don't get to talk to me anymore. Don't call me again. He did good, but it brought his wife back to that same place. It brought her all the way back to the beginning. All those emotions, all the hurt, all the anger toward the other woman came rushing back and she found herself in a very similar circumstance. So we sat in the counseling room and I asked her, I asked the wife, I said, what do you wanna have happen to this other woman? And she gave me an answer, <laughs> right? She responded and she said, I want her to be miserable. I want her to suffer, I don't wanna deal with her any What makes her think she has the right to talk to my husband? It's understandable, right? And then I asked, is that what God's heart is for her? For her to be miserable and to suffer? And she looked at me with a look that was like, oh, come on, (laughs) right? We're not going to go here, are we? But we asked again, I said, so knowing what God's heart would be for her, what do we want for this other woman? And it's for the enemy, this other woman who she would call the enemy to have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, even if it was out of selfish motivation, right? Because then the other woman probably would stop calling her husband, right? So there's some selfish motivation in it. But it wasn't until the wife was able to put down her anger put down her hatred for the other woman, and she actually, that week, prayed for the other woman that they had a breakthrough. I remember two weeks later, they came in for the next session, and I said, hey, how have the last couple weeks been? How have the conversations been? The husband looks at me, he's like, it's been awesome, right? Because they finally were able to move past it. It was such a beautiful example of how her brain allowed her to know what was glorifying to God and overtake the feelings of her heart. You could see the struggle. You could see her pain as she was processing this, as she was going through this, but God blessed her obedience when she trusted him as a loving father. And that's exactly what we see here with Jonah. In his brain, he knows he doesn't wanna go. He does not want to go to Nineveh, but it doesn't mean that he didn't do it because he knew what was glorifying to the Lord. So when he got the second chance, he went. And if you don't believe me when I say that he didn't wanna go, remember earlier I said in chapter one, he tried to flee away from the presence of the Lord. He did not want to go to Nineveh, and I get that. Like, I actually get why he wouldn't want to go to Nineveh. Nineveh's the enemy. This is the rival. I understand why he wouldn't want to go. Like, I'm a big Michigan fan, right? If you don't know this about me by now, you don't know me very well, right? I love Michigan. So the enemy is two people, Michigan State and Ohio State. I don't ever want to find myself in East Lansing or Columbus, In fact, about 10 years ago, in a very mature, well, not 10 years ago, more like 15 years ago, whenever I would go to the east side of the state, I would purposely drive around Lansing, (laughs) right? I wouldn't go through that city because I didn't want to be in the presence of the enemy. So I get it. I get why you didn't do that. I know, it's pathetic. But as we get back on a more serious note, that doesn't surprise me that Jonah didn't wanna go. What surprises me is that he actually thought he could get away from the presence of the Lord. Like he just thought, if I go to the other side of the world, God won't see me? Does it work like that? I don't think it does. It doesn't work like that. In fact, God sent a huge fish to swallow him and he ended up being in much more pain than if he just went to Nineveh in the first place. But then I started thinking, don't we do this in our lives? Maybe we don't travel to the other side of the world, but we run to different things that help us forget that God is always there. That no matter what we do, we're in his presence. And for some of you, it might be alcohol or drugs, right? Those are the first two easy ones that come to mind, right? What about, what about relationships? How many of us go from relationship to relationship looking and hoping to find meaning instead of looking to God for that because we just want to find our love in something easy in this world? Good news is we have a God of second chances. So every time you end one relationship, you have a chance to reevaluate what that looks like or every time you're entering into another one. And then I was asking my wife, I'm like, come on, give me more stuff for this list. And of course, she made a better point than any of the ones I did. And she said, what about isolation? Isolation During this COVID season, how many of us have gotten incredibly comfortable being home? Or at least just not doing what we want to do or doing exactly what we want to do and not going outside of our comfort zone. It's a conversation that I've been having regularly here at the church, and sometimes it happens at the church, but most of the time it happens at the grocery store, at the gym. Obviously, as you look at me, not as often at the gym as at the grocery store, (laughs) but people will come up to me, and they'll be like, Pastor Craig, and I'll be like, how you doing? It's been a while, I haven't seen you. And I get something like this. Hey, so sorry we haven't been at church. We're so sorry, it's just you guys do such a good job with your online service. You do such a good job. And I just really love watching church with my pajamas on and a cup of coffee, right? And my usual response to that is we have coffee here too, right, and donuts. (laughs) Feel free to come over. And before anybody gets offended, I understand that there are many people watching online right now that have a great reason for being home. Maybe it's a physical struggle that doesn't allow you to come to church. Maybe you've talked to your doctor and your health is at a point where it's just not safe for you to be out in public right now. I get that. I really do. And we want to do everything we can to love you well while you're home as a church. Maybe you're on vacation. If you're watching us from vacation, that's awesome. I think that's great. One of my favorite sermons we ever had here was my wife and I in Florida floating around in the pool listening to Pastor Chris on our AirPods. Right? That was a fantastic message. How couldn't it be? But there's many people at home watching right now for the simple fact that it's more convenient and more comfortable. And there's many people in this room that their church attendance isn't what it used to be because it's more comfortable to be at home. And if that's you, all I'm saying is you're neglecting the amazing things that God has for you here in this community at church every weekend every Sunday morning. You're missing the blessing that is small group. This is our last weekend to sign up for small group. You can throughout the year, but small groups are starting. We're placing on Monday. Go back to that table. If you're not in a small group, get in a group, right? See what the blessing of community can be. And you're missing blessing others by serving here at the church. You can't serve in your pajamas. Right Now, if you came in your pajamas and you were serving, we might allow it. But it's better if you are here and you are missing it. But the good news is that we have a God of second chances. And every single weekend is a second chance to come to church, to be with other believers, and to pour into other people by serving. Which brings us to our next point, which is how we respond to discipline matters. So what about Jonah? How did he respond to God's discipline of sending a giant fish to swallow him up for three days? And it's really simple, he went. The second time around, he went to Nineveh. And sometimes we need to respond to God's discipline simply by being disciplined, doing something even if we don't wanna do it. We know he didn't wanna go. He attempted to flee from God's presence the first time. We just talked about that. But what was the alternative? Was God gonna send a bigger fish, right? Or maybe maybe worse. Maybe God would simply not send a fish and let Jonah drown in the Mediterranean Sea. But let's see what God, um, what he did with Jonah's discipline. And let's continue reading in Jonah 3, verse 4. It says, Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey. Only one day, it took three, remember. And he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and the violence that is in his hands. That's a pretty good response. God used Jonah's discipline in response to his discipline. So Jonah goes into this large city and I just wanna take a minute and talk about this sermon that he gave, right? What church can I be a pastor at that I can do an eight word sermon (laughs) like Jonah, right? Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. You see what I did right there? I memorized his sermon. I haven't memorized mine. Right? This is going to take me a lot longer than eight words. And when I first heard this, the first thing I could think of was like, Jonah, that's it? Like, dude, that's all you got? The people of Nineveh knew that he was a prophet of God. They knew where he was from, but this is all he says. Eight words. And he doesn't talk about God's grace. He doesn't talk about their need for repentance. It just says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. To be honest, it felt lazy to me. Anybody else feel that way? It felt like a lazy sermon, except I know that this is what God called him to say in the moment. If you remember back in verse two, it said, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So he gave the message. And in verse five, it says, and the people of Nineveh believed God. It doesn't say the people of Nineveh believed Jonah. It said they believed God, so it doesn't matter what the heart position of Jonah was, but rather his willingness to do what God called him to do they immediately knew that this message was from God, all of them, and that's why it carried so much weight. It didn't matter the inflection. It didn't matter how it was taught. It didn't matter the source because God was the one providing the words, if only eight of them. Eight words from God is a lot better than hundreds of words from anybody else. And again, what this tells us is how we respond to discipline matters because God has a bigger plan than we can possibly imagine. So what about Nineveh? How did they respond to God's discipline? And this is, this is interesting to me because it's a different form of discipline, right? With Jonah, he had already experienced the discipline. But with the people of Nineveh, they were about to experience it. This is the difference between me giving my three-year-old son Hudson a timeout because of something he did, and me telling him, if you keep doing this, you're going to get a timeout right? They're told you're about to get a timeout. And we know how they responded. They repented. They put on sackcloth. They fasted. They prayed to God. But I think even more important than what they did is why they did it. Like, why would they learn so fast before they even messed up? I mean, yes, they were already messing up, but why did they do this so fast? Then the only thing I can think of, the only thing I can pull from the text is that they did it out of fear. They had a healthy fear of the Lord. And I wanna explain what that means by explaining how I learned what a healthy fear of the Lord means. It was about 10 years ago, and uh, I was in my third year teaching, and it was my second year as the boys' varsity tennis coach. And I had a Twilight Zone moment with one of my players that I just didn't understand how this could happen. The year before, he was purposely throwing matches in one of our final tournaments, because he wanted to get out of there to get to a different sport that he was playing for a different team. So he purposely lost. Naturally, we suspended him, right? He was done for the season. And then the next year he comes back. By the way, he's our best player. I just wanted to make that clear. Makes this decision much more difficult. So the next year he comes back and he starts playing. And first day of tryouts, he beats everyone on the team. But then he realizes if I'm the best player on this team, I have to play the best player from every other team and I'm gonna get my butt kicked all year. So what does he do the next day? He purposely loses every single match that he plays in tryouts. So I knew what I had to do. He was done. It was best for the team. It was glorifying to the Lord and honestly, it was best for the player to learn that he couldn't do this anymore but guess who didn't agree with my assessment of the situation? The player. And guess who really didn't agree with my assessment? His, yeah, his mom, more specifically. But yes, his parents, <laughs> right? So here I am, and I'm about to have a meeting with the player, his mom, and my JV coach, who was just a player that graduated last year, so he'll be good for nothing. And I said, and I said, to, I said to one of my good friends, kind of a mentor at the time, Pat O'Neill Peel, we called him, And I said, P.L., I'm nervous, man. I don't know if I have the courage to tell them and stick to my guns of knowing what is right and what I have to do. And he just looked at me, he's like, Craig, you'll be fine. And I'm like, I'm glad you're confident. right?" He goes, you wanna know why I know you'll be fine? Because you have a healthy fear of the Lord. And I said to him, what does that even mean? (laughs) right? Remember, I was very smart 10 years ago. What does that even mean? He said, what's glorifying to God? I said, to let him go. What's best for him? What's best for the team? And I said, to let him go. And he goes, if you know what the right decision is, your fear of doing the wrong thing in God's eyes will far outweigh your fear of his mom and the player. I was like, well, when you put it that way, you're probably right. And that's exactly what This city of Nineveh the Ninevites had was a healthy fear of the Lord. Proverbs 8, uh, 13 says, The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. And that evil is exactly what the Ninevites were turning away from. This was a city that slaughtered and enslaved countless people. This was a city that was known for injustice and oppression but now they have something to fear much more powerful than themselves, much more powerful than any army or nation that they had ever faced. They were now facing the Lord. So instead of their normal response of injustice and oppression, they respond with humility and pleading for God to relent, if even for their own sake, because they understood their position before God. That's a healthy fear of the Lord. It's knowing that he loves you, but also that you're knowing your position in line with him. So what about us, right? You know what I learned, you know how I learned this, but what about us? What can we learn from both Jonah and the Ninevites and how they respond to discipline? And God, just like us, disciplines the ones he loves. Why would I discipline somebody I don't love? Right? In Hebrews twelve says this much better than I could. Let's read there. It says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And when reading this, and I I see the ending there, what father is there who his son he does not discipline? And naturally I think of my kids, right? And we have two kiddos, Natalie is nine and my son Hudson is three. And I wanna talk about Hudson here for a second, right? If you know my son, he loves two things. Right, he loves being really, really loud. Right, he gets that from his mom, right? <laughs> and he loves being outside. Every morning when he wakes up from, from sleeping at night, from his nap, throughout the day, it's go outside, we go outside, we go outside now. And I'm just like, yeah, dude, chill, right? Like, we're gonna go outside. He loves being outside in God's creation. He loves going around in his battery-powered car. He loves being around his sister, Right? And when he was two years old, it was really easy to keep him away from the dangerous places. He was slow. <laughs> right? But when you go outside, there's dangerous things. We live in a neighborhood, but we still have roads. And we're on the corner lot, so a lot of times cars turn and they're on top of our driveway before they even turn their focus to the road. So we know that we can't let Hudson be there. And he's not old enough to check both ways. So when he was two, it was simple. Don't walk into the road and I'll catch you if you try. Right, but now that he's three, things have gotten a little more complex, right? It's Hudson, don't walk in the road. Hudson, don't run into the road. Don't ride your bike into the road. Don't ride your scooter into the road. Don't chase that ball into the road and definitely don't drive your battery-powered car into the road. And he loves that thing all day. And do you think he follows these rules perfectly? No, he's three, right? So we'd have to discipline him. And it started with teaching. And my wife has a way with words. She would get down on his level and she would point to the the road and she would say, Hudson, you can't go on this road. This can be big time owies, (laughs) right? And I'm just like, okay, that's fine. So I tell him as the father, Hudson, don't go on this road because if you get hit by a car, you'll die, (laughs) right? And that will be the end of it. It was probably a little harsh, right? That was the stern warning of don't go. But then if he didn't listen to that, we had to give a consequence. And, and maybe it was as simple as taking away the toy that was causing him to go on the road. Maybe it was saying, we're done playing outside for a little while. Or maybe it was even, you can't go outside until you remember it and you're gonna get a time out in your room for a couple minutes to help you remember if we had to, and this would make him so angry, and I'm sure that he thought we were just there to make his life miserable and prevent him from doing literally anything that he wanted to do. But the parents in this room, and I think all of us can relate, know that this could not be further from the truth. We were lovingly protecting him, and we knew that the discipline that we were giving him, the consequences were far less than the potential consequences of him continuing to run in the road. And in this same way, we have a loving father who is there to protect us because he loves us. No other reason. It's love. And it doesn't mean that he will completely remove us from the situation, but what it does mean is that how we respond to his discipline matters. Because if Hudson keeps running into the road over and over again, eventually something bad will happen. So, if there's an area in your life where you're struggling and you feel like you're going down the same path over and over and over again, and you don't understand why God would have this for you, why is this so difficult? Maybe we need to change our questioning a little bit and we need to ask ourselves the question, how am I responding to God's discipline? Because that's definitely what is happening. Am I disciplined or am I continuing to make the same mistakes, going down the same path and continuing to give in to my feelings and emotions and the I wants? Or am I turning away from my feelings and turning toward God's truth? Do I realize that God's discipline is out of love and nothing else? The situation I find myself in is out of love. Because God's discipline matters and his purpose is far greater than anything we could imagine, which brings us to our third point, which is God's purpose always prevails. It always prevails. What does that mean for Jonah? Well, we could keep it really simple and we could say God's purpose for Jonah was to go to Nineveh, preach a message, and the city would be saved. The salvation of Nineveh. But it's so much bigger than that. There's this chain reaction that starts in chapter one that goes all the way through chapter three where God uses Jonah in his obedience and his disobedience to bring people closer together with him. And we see this chain reaction of people crying out. I want you to hear this. This is kind of cool. God told Jonah to cry out to Nineveh by preaching. And he said no. And then the ship captain told Jonah to cry out to his God. And then the sailors cry out to the Lord. And then finally, in the distress of the fish, Jonah cries out to God. And then finally gets around to doing that crying out to Nineveh and preaching. And then they believed God and the people of Nineveh cry out for a fast and finally the king and all the people cry out to God. All in God's purpose, both in Jonah's disobedience and his obedience. Full circle. All the way from Tarshish to Nineveh as only God can. So what about the people of Nineveh? What was God's purpose with them? We know that they repented and we know they did this, but I I wanna read the ending of chapter three here because this is pretty remarkable to me. Jonah uh, three, verse nine starts with the king saying, who knows, right? Who knows God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. The people of Nineveh, the king, is in complete submission and humility to God and he proves it with those two words. Who knows? He doesn't know what God is gonna do. He has no clue, but he still humbles himself. He still repents and put on sackcloth and prays and fasts, even though he doesn't know the end result. And as I look at the people of Nineveh and as I read this, I couldn't help but be a little bit sad for them because they have this who knows faith and they they know that they have to obey God and they're making the choice to submit themselves to him to humble themselves to him, but they still have to say, who knows? And that brings us to our big question. I didn't forget about it. Our big question for the day is, can we really know God's intentions? The people of Nineveh, they didn't know. They didn't know. And verse nine clearly tells us that by those two words. But I think often in our lives, we kinda live by this who knows faith, don't we? And there's times that we don't know what God is going to do, right? I think about right now, for the last week or so, my hip has been hurting so much. Don't take offense, people, but I feel like I'm 75 years old, right? I wonder, am I gonna be able to walk up these steps and come over here? That's why I've been planted behind the podium, right? And I don't know what God's gonna do with it. I don't know. I have a who knows faith in that. And there are times where we just don't know what God's intention is here with the difficulties that we're going through. We just won't know. But when it comes to our salvation, do we have to question that? Do we have to question what his intention is? Do we have to wonder any more? In 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, it says very clearly that God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we don't have to have that sadness that I was feeling for the people of Nineveh. We get joy in knowing that God didn't destine us for wrath. We have the cross. We have Jesus Christ to look to. And if we have accepted him as our Lord and Savior, we have no need to worry about eternity. But that doesn't mean it's gonna be easy now. It doesn't mean just because I've accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, everything's gonna be great in this world. It's the opposite. That hurt that sin has caused in this world, death, Destruction, it is still here. And I think about families in our church that are going through things that are so much worse than my hip a recent death of a loved one, a cancer diagnosis, not knowing what God's going to do with it. And I could see how they could ask this question why? Why are you doing this, God? And it's important to remember in this moment that God, when he said he did not destine us for wrath, it doesn't mean he didn't destine us for hurt here on earth. He will still discipline us out of love, but his goal is to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ. And that's what this is about. And understanding that while it's hard, while we're here, we are not stuck here forever. And when we know that, and we know the love that Jesus has for us and that he showed us, and we know that he went through more pain than any of us will go through, we can actually start to find the hope and, dare I say, joy in the midst of suffering, in the midst of hard times and loss. And again, it doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. Whatever you're going through, whatever you will go through, whatever you've been through, right? Just like it wasn't easy for Jonah to go to Nineveh. He didn't want to go. It probably, I know it wasn't easy for the wife and the story that I told you to pray for the other woman. It wasn't easy for the Ninevites to humble themselves, and it is not easy for Hudson not to go on the road. And often it won't be easy for us. It'll be hard, but don't let that discourage you because we know the end game. And we know the love that God has for us by who he sent for us. So if you're like Jonah in chapter one, if you are fleeing from the Lord, if you are trying to run away from him, I would just encourage you, stop. There's nowhere you can go that he's not already there. Just turn around and look to the God of salvation. And if you don't know what that looks like after we sing this next song, I would invite you, Honestly, I would just ask you, come up front. We'll have pastors and elders that would love to share with you the love that you can find and the hope and joy in Jesus Christ and the promise that you have in eternity with him because we serve a God of second chances. And maybe today is yours. The question is, how will you respond? Let's pray. Dear Lord, God, I am standing up here just thankful, thankful for the second chances that you've given me in my life. I've needed them and countless times. And I think um, if we're honest with ourselves in this room, we would say that many of us have needed many second chances. God, but you are faithful. You are good. You are loving. And God, I I know that there are people in this room that have seen your discipline, that they're on the other side of it. And through your discipline, they've seen nothing but your love. They've seen your greater purpose play out. Lord, and they are thankful. I know there are other people in this room that are going through it right now. They're going through a difficult time. They're going through a difficult circumstance, Lord. And I pray for them that they would cry out to you that they would look to you for their hope during this time. And there are others who don't know you or they haven't fully given themselves to you, Lord. And I pray for them that they would realize the love that you would have for them, that you would soften their hearts to talk, to ask the question, who is this Jesus? What makes him so great? Because God, you deserve all the glory, all the praise. And we're thankful for you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.